it's time to fight. Ding, ding, ding. I'm angry. <laughs> I've got some beef. Some galbi beef. Where's the beef? <laughs> I got it. Section 80 is the best Kendrick album. Whoa, hot take. It's Hot Take Wednesday. Let's fucking go, dude. I'm so ready. I'm fucking chomping at the that's my secret. Has this song always been this long? I'm my always The adaptation is dun, dun, dun. jello. I might have slowed the BPM. Oh, Hello. Oh, okay. Welcome to We Bought a Mic. Or, or as it's known this week, We Fought a Mic. Do you have a sound effect? Uh, like boxing bell sound effect? Bing, or? bing. Guess what, Drew? I'm drunk. I'm angry. As I usually am as a small man. <laughs> yep. And I'm on a cold brew coffee <laughs> and I'm on beer number two. So this this <laughs> so is our let's go. This is our second ever We Fought a Mic. The show where we uh acknowledge that we agree too much on a weekly basis yeah. and we have to uh orchestrate a disagreement. Yeah. So the first We Fought a Mike was just me coming in guns blazing and telling you guys I don't give a shit about Star Wars. Yeah. No preparation. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to make you mad. Infamous. And it went great. Yeah. So Everyone ca- loved it. You caught me really off guard that time. Yeah. That was awesome. This time, I'm prepared. I am prepared. And I will be the judge. I won't be fighting. I will be judging yeah. the fight. So we're doing a three-round uh, boxing match here. It's just me, Vidri. Yeah. It, and it's not necessarily... T- entirely opinion based but it's all pop culture uh me versus hunter yes and i'm i'm excited for this yeah you guys i don't know anyone's picks but you guys told each other your picks to prepare rebuttals correct yeah. and Ernest, no we I, actually no, did we not didn't. we oh. decided yeah we so decided rebuttals on the fly yes rebuttals have to be on the fly um but Nevertheless, this is going to be great. Um, I think in the future we're going to like switch around who's moderating and who is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or uh, maybe we could fighting. bring in a guest. Yeah, yeah, that would be uncomfortable. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they're ready. If we have any guests, it would have to be the right close. guest. But well, maybe a guest judge. Yeah, that could work. That could work. Uh, but anyway, uh, Ernest has promised he will be as objective as possible. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily just like real debates. If you watch them, it's not necessarily about the right, correct opinion. It's about who is presenting their argument the best, which and is also why debates suck. <laughs> That's why right. debate club is dumb, because it's, you're not trying to decide what's right. You're just trying to decide who's right. And also, I, I, I'm not going to be... Um, well, I'm going to try my absolute best to not be swayed by any outside facts that are not presented in your argument. Yeah, so, well, sorry for this, but me and Drew are both painting opinions that are going to sway to your my, sides. And also, <laughs> I'm talking more about like if, if one of you, if there's something in the realm of the topics that are being debated that is not brought up, that is a clear... A point in somebody's favor but it's not brought up in the argument if, yeah, the I'm, other not, person, I'm gonna yeah. try not to consider it that's fair um off that point uh because you just said that my kendrick lamar argument it involves the idea that there are no other albums except for the one that i'm talking about so if hunter doesn't bring up that there are other ones <laughs> you can't take that into account okay I, I, oh i'm not i'm i just sat that one out i'm so assuming I, yeah. maybe that's an instant win for you maybe you. you'll forget know. by then <laughs> all right so three rounds um and we'll do a best two out of three i won't reveal my pick until all three rounds are up um and the winner 
gets to eat the other one's lunch. <laughs> Shit, I'm going to eat your Lunchable. <laughs> Damn. That's fucked up. We didn't decide what the winner gets to do. Is That's it going to be like a loogie, like a nipple, purple nurple? Uh, winner decides whatever they want they get to do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, damn. All right. Jesus. I like these consequences. This could turn, this yeah. could turn dark very easily. <laughs> Definitely. Like, if we are in the right mood, we could kill each the other. The loser for next week while we review Endgame has to not watch Endgame, has to just make up facts <laughs> on the fly about the movie. I would almost... And just get the movie spoiled in front of them. I would almost rather do that anyway. I think that would be more it. fun. Just me just being like, yeah, I hated when... You're, but, yeah, like... Like, but what about that when Max Keeble did this thing? <laughs> yeah, I, that would be a punishment for you guys. I would ruin your review. Oh, wow. Please anyway. don't let Drew win. <laughs> all right, all right. No, see, you're already I'm biased. I'm carrying America this is already point bullshit. on my back. <laughs> no, right. no, no, no. Forget it. Well, we're striking the record. Okay. As soon as we start, it's, it's a clear board. So... Question number one. We fought a mic 2019. Smackdown Raw. Ugh. What is the best Kendrick Lamar album? Okay. And uh, before you start talking, I'm going to give each of you a opening statement without the other one saying anything. Okay. And then you can fight it out. Interesting. And then the round, so we can get this whole episode done in a timely manner the round i will also be calling the round when it gets you know we could we could do each round around 15 20 minutes ish you know if you guys are in the middle of a heated argument i'm i'm, I'm gonna try to keep it going to to have it resolve yeah. itself but we need to fit in three rounds in the in a good time in like an hour or so so okay cool all right drew opening statement opening statement um so to pimp a butterfly by Kendrick Lamar is not the album that I am defending here. Okay. To Pimp a Butterfly is a little bit more critically acclaimed than my album. Uh, it's more ambitious, and it may be the greatest Kendrick Lamar album. But I'm going to make the case that it is not the best Kendrick Lamar album. That's the question, after all. What is the best? Mm -hmm. I think the best Kendrick Lamar album is Good Kid, Mad City. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go over many criterion for why it is the best album. Not necessarily, again, not maybe not the greatest, maybe not the most ambitious, but I think that we can maybe take for granted the fact that Kendrick has two masterpieces. He doesn't just have one. Um, and I think that that changes starting right now. All right. Hunter, opening statement. <laughs> I mean, you almost just made my opening statement for me, Drew, with all of your... Uh, I mean, you're already praising To Pimp a Butterfly, which is my statement for the best Kendrick Lamar album. This is an album that while yes, I mean, I will not I will not slight Good Kid Mad City. I will say that is a very very great pop album, great rap album. Um To Pimp Butterfly is more than that. To Pimp Butterfly both uses the ability to have great catchy poppy rap songs that can play on a hit station and also make social statements that transcend the genre and get a company like Fox News shouting out Kendrick as putting down black people. And that's why To My Butterfly is more than just a rap album. Okay. It's more than anything like that. So Good Kid Mad City versus To Pimp a Butterfly. Go for it. Go in. Um, Drag them. I'll let you go ahead. All right. So To Pimp a Butterfly. First of all, I just want to, before I even get into a track list, I want to talk about the overlying story that is To Pimp Butterfly. Um, 
both Good Kid and Timbo Butterfly have a very clear story in which they're trying to tell. Timbo Butterfly, I think, most effectively uses the story at this point. This is post Good Kid, so Kendrick has already seen a little bit of the success. So it's post the Uncle Sam character that's in, created in Good Kid, and said we're kind of invented to this whole new character, uh, Lucy. Who is, yeah, get, tell your mom to go fuck herself, Drew. Sorry. Oh my god. <laughs> it was just Kendrick calling me, telling him he's, he's rooting for me. Oh, okay. Um, he hates to pimp a butterfly. <laughs> he's just like, this is my biggest regret. Yeah. Um, to pimp a butterfly, we have this central overlying story of a black man wrestling with the idea of wealth and influence and using that influence to both succeed so that he can tell his story while also still representing the culture in which he came from. This is most apparently seen through his poem that he writes throughout, that he gives excerpts of throughout the album. Um, And of course this whole thing manifests itself in the very end where it's actually all a poem that he's reading to Tupac Shakur, who is, I mean, before Kendrick, most notably known as the artist to transcend the genre and speak about race relations in America and in society as a whole. That's why I think To Pimp Butterfly is the best album, even though it does have some of the biggest bangers of the world, which I'll say that because I know you got some good ones on your album. <laughs> um, I think that this is even better than bangers. Like This is more deep than that. This is more visceral than that. This is touching on society as a whole. When you get songs like... Everything from King Kunta to You, which is a song about deep, like, sadness and depression, to something like Hood Politics, to How Much a Dollar Cost, that's about just the whole idea of this selfishness in American society to even give a dollar to a homeless person when this person might just be somebody trying to better their own lives and not might not just be like a crackhead like you're just putting them out to me i'm weeping the blacker the berry (laughs) the sweeter the juice oh my god he's pulling out like like atlanta preacher you go ahead (laughs) shit you can't can't see me this isn't a visual podcast but i have a full cloak on is easter sunday are you you cedric the entertainer from from first reformed right now (laughs) okay I think that every point you just made about To Pimp a Butterfly can also be said about Good Kid, Mad City. The main difference is Good Kid is more of an origin story. In fact, I think it's the greatest origin story ever told through music. Uh, And that is, while that's the main focus of the album, the depth in this album is unbelievable. It says a ton about society as a whole. It says a ton about the endless cycle of violence that children, particularly children of color born into low-income families, enter into. Uh, and it gets deep into the, the inner conflict that Kendrick is fighting. This is a concept album. Uh, Good Kid, Mad City. That can be forgotten because of my main point as to why it's better. Listenability. Uh, I would quote the great... Uh, the great thinker of our time, Bill Simmons, when he says, the hardest art to make is art that pleases everybody, every single person. Now, To Pimp a Butterfly did great with critics, obviously. Uh, 
so did Good Kid, Mad City. It did unbelievably well. It, like, it got a 9.5 in Pitchfork. It's sitting at, like, a 91 on Metacritic. It did unbelievably well overall. And also, while there are bangers on To Pimp a Butterfly, there are three bangers on To Pimp a Butterfly. There are at least ten on Good Kid, Mad City. Uh, they can be listened to individually in a playlist, like 90% of these songs, or you can listen through the entire album with an entire narrative uh, kind of like arcing through each of these songs. Uh, that adds a lot of value to the album, I think. Uh, to Butterfly is an amazing album, but some of the songs, I think, do require the context of the songs around them in order to listen to them, uh, which that's fine. But if you can do both, if you can be a cohesive album that does it all, uh, it has on one side the commercial appeal. The Think about if you hear a Kendrick song in somebody's car, there's a good chance it's going to be a song off of Good Kid, Mad City. Uh, I'm just going through songs on this album. Bitch Don't Kill My Vibe. Heard it a billion times. You can hear it at a party or you can hear it while crying at your computer. Backseat Freestyle. Intensely, viscerally, uh, b- like deep story of a song. And also just like a fucking banger cypher rap that can be played at parties and people know the words. Uh, Money Trees, amazing old school hip hop beat. Also, the beats in this album are a lot of the most iconic beats that have ever been crafted in hip hop music. Uh, There's a lot to be said about To Pimp a Butterfly's uh, fusion of jazz and hip hop and all the other influences that go into it. Uh, but there are so many different subgenres in Good Kid that it kind of blows my mind when I was going through. You get boom bap, like classic hip hop from the 90s. You get uh, Compton infused uh, California style rap. You get psychedelic rap. You get pop rap. You We had a top 10 hit song on this album uh, before he had ever had a hit before, before he was a household name at all. Um, I think that this is the most dynamic album he's ever put out in terms of immense amounts of depth which all of his work has to some degree but we can both agree that damn and section 80 have a little bit less than each of these two albums um i think this is the best album that he's put out all right let's hear more from you so um to your point you keep speaking about listenability and you quoted one of the great thinkers of our time bill simmons (laughs) i'm gonna quote another one of the great thinkers of our time anthony fantano Mm. um I'm not actually going to quote him. I just wanted to name another great thinker of our time. Um, So everything that you said about listenability, about how you could listen to Bitch Don't Kill My Vibe or um, Money Trees, a lot of these songs are like, they're very like poppy. You can play them at a club or at a house party and they're just fun. I think that that almost proves my point about why to pimp butterfly is better because whenever you listen to a song about king kunta that makes you like think about who is king kunta when you think about fucking the black or the berry that is a song about black pride king kunta is a song about black pride institutionalized is a song about black pride it's so much more on the sleeve in a surface kind of a way that kendrick isn't trying to hide messages behind a fat dope beat that you guys can just like all like all the white people in the club can just like jam out to this is more so like he's bringing the the issues to the surface 
in all right he samples a fox news segment like about himself like that's what he's just like he's going straight after the people who are like coming at him after him trying to like bring out these kind of black issues and music and everything else like that he's saying like all right if you're gonna jam out to my beat and you're gonna sing the words i'm gonna sing then they're gonna mean something here more than anything else like i'm gonna sing like no matter what we're gonna be all right that's all right became an anthem in the black lives matter movement think about that that while people were rioting in the streets for Black Lives Matter movements, protesting against the cops. They're sitting out there in the street singing, we gonna be all right. How powerful of a moment is that? I don't think that anything on Good Kid will ever compare to that. Hmm. All right, let's hear more thoughts, Drew. Uh, I think I think plenty of things on Good Kid compared to that. I don't think he's hiding anything except in the song Swimming Pools, where he's explicitly uh, has a double meaning to almost every lyric in that song. Uh, in the chorus that is uh, otherwise these beats aren't beats that you would ever hear on the radio they just got on the radio because they were so good um, and I think that lyrically in terms of technicality this is easily his most technical album uh, and complex in terms of uh, consonants rhyming like internal rhyme scheme it's it's kind of insane if you were to like list out all the lyrics on each of these albums they have the same amount of songs uh, if you count bonus tracks but this has a lot more lyrics in it uh, because he is telling a story that he like desperately wants to tell. Uh, I, I love that he goes deep into societal issues and it's a bigger picture album into Pimp a Butterfly. But it's kind of like movies for me. I love deeply personal movies. I love movies that tell a small story and let you uh, realize the big conclusion that is very obvious by the way like he doesn't like not say anything about society in the album he says a lot about society uh but the songs that get into his backstory are kind of like the most visceral songs i've ever heard in my life um to talk about killing people when you were 13 to talk about watching seeing a dead body when you were nine years old and to tell it in a way that is not even trying to act like it's not true <laughs> you know he's saying no this did happen to me uh I was in this scene and then I got out. Um, but why did I have to be in this scene? He is painting an empathetic picture of a character that is smeared across all media. Gang members are viewed as like roaches by plenty of people. Don't need to name names of who would personify people as animals uh, <laughs> in the news. But he, I, I had never at that point, this is 2012 we're talking about, I had never heard such a vivid picture of what this life was like. I had heard people like Tupac and Nas and Biggie who have, you know, they paved the way for Kendrick to do things like this, obviously. But his unflinching uh, lyrical ability to tell this story combined with his technical ability, which is just as good as like Eminem at his peak when just like every word seemed to rhyme when he wanted it to, uh, it means that the music is like easily more important than any music Eminem ever made, but it's equally unbelievably impressive to listen to. Um, All right. Is that your final thoughts or do you have anything else? Uh, I mean, sure. I'll say something else if I think of it. All right. Well, yeah, I just want to, I'll give one last argument and then we can both do our closing. Thoughts. Okay. Um, so 
you said this is the most complex Kendrick album. I have to wholeheartedly disagree with that. Mm. When mm. you think about musically, what Kendrick does on this album, just listen to I said, West. I said lyrically, though. Even lyrically and musically, I'm going to say that To Pimp Butterfly is miles above. While I think I will give Good Kid that it has some really good bangers and like club beats. You're putting it down when you say that. You're, I'm not you're being putting like, oh, it it's, down. It's poppy. It's it's I'm good kid, Mad City. We're going to represent pop Lamar. punk music in a bit. Like I'm not putting down pop music as a genre. I'm saying that it is have some really good beats, but lyrically and musically, what Kendrick does into Pimp a Butterfly is so much more mature than Good Kid. I mean, just listen to if you want to listen to musically, just listen to Wesley's Theory alone. Like the first album, the first. Um, song on the album itself the way that it fuses this funkadelic vibe with this like darkness to the bass and we have Thundercat coming in there the way that it uses samples mixed in with new instrumentation is so on another level that advances anything even something like Kanye who I love has done he still will rely on something like samples Kendrick is bringing in uh musicians who are working in today's day and age and doing that now when you have something like for free interlude the second song on the album we're only two songs in and he's doing something that's so jazzy that it could be like you could just throw him rapping over like a song and whiplash over the soundtrack that's on another level what he is bringing his lyricism and the way that he is uh working with the beat itself is unlike anything else that I've ever heard before. When you have a song like Complexion that's working on multiple level Complexion and um You Ain't Got a Lie which are working on these dual levels that you were talking about. Both of them Complexion the first one talking about, you know, like both white versus black, but also just light skin versus dark skin in black culture, and about how that's a whole other system, systematic racism itself, that even somebody like as popular as Steph Curry has talked about how he was segregated against because he's light-skinned, even though he is black, he is still segregated in his own community so that he can never really find a community of his own. And you ain't got to lie, it's about this whole culture that we feel in ourselves that like if you don't belong then you almost have to fake your way to belonging if you don't really fit in with white people then you just gotta say the n-word around all of your black friends so that you can actually get in with them you have to pretend like you trap and all this kind of stuff and it's like you ain't you ain't got a lie to kick it like that's the whole point of the album of the song itself and even with i and this is really why i wanted to end uh, my whole point itself was with I and with Mortal Man. I was a song that came out a year before uh, To Pimp Butterfly came out. It came out and people were very much it was a popular song it won a Grammy but a lot of people were turned against it because the whole thing is I love myself and it has this very uplifting message but whenever you listen to it in the order of the album it almost pl- serves on two purposes. It serves on the uh, surface of this kind of a breakthrough moment of I'm learning to love myself and that's all that's really important to me is as long as I love myself it doesn't really matter who else is and under the surface almost feels like it's still a mask that uh-huh. you're wearing that 
depression isn't okay to bring out around everybody else. A lot of people are very uncomfortable with depression. A lot of people are just like, just put on a happy face. And that's kind of one of the things that always draws me back to that song is a lot of just certain things with the lyrics is that he's bringing out moments like, yeah, you know, I love myself and that's all that matters. But a lot of it is all, he's naming surface level things. It's never anything that's really getting down deep into his core that makes him happy. And then with Mortal Man, it's kind of, that's one of the things that brings me back to my second thoughts on I, is that when shit hits the fan, are you still a fan? Is the 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 chorus of that song. And I feel like that's where the whole album reaches to, is like, I is almost this mask that you end up like drawing upon, is like, this is the conclusion that I have to reach, whether it's actually where I am or not. This is the mask that I have to reach. And then if shit comes out after this, are you still going to like me? Or are you just going to ditch me? Because this, I, I wore the mask that you wanted me to wear, and it turns out that that wasn't true. And what's going to happen after this? And that's kind of where I am with this album. That's why I think this album is truly just a masterpiece behind, beyond anything else. I think that this is the greatest rap album of all time. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I really think that To Pimp a Butterfly is just, I think that it transcends the genre in a way unlike anything else. I'm just going to lead right into my closing statements right here, and then you can make yours since you opened first. I think To Pimp a Butterfly, it just, Kendrick cements himself as a legend on this album. Good Kid is one of those albums, while where it has some good themes and everything else, <laughs> it's still something that could have been a one-off. There's plenty of not just rap artists, but rock bands, anything like that, that just make one-off albums. And I think to Bum Butterfly, it's one of those things where you hear it, and I just remember listening to it for the first time and kind of putting together the message of the album and it hitting me in such a core way that I don't think any other album I've ever listened to has ever hit me in that kind of a way. I, I have one that has, and it's actually Good Kid, Mad City by Kendrick Lamar. The rapper that we're talking about. Oh. <laughs> oh, shit. In this argument, I will be talking about why I like this album. And it's actually <laughs> Damn by Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> yeah, Section 80 is so good. Um, I have the same relationship with Good Kid, Mad City. I've never heard an album that painted such a vivid picture of a human being before. I think that's the most impressive thing that art can do is after watching it or listening to it or consuming it, you understand a person as a whole like the amount of ground that he covered over the course of the album is like breathtaking when you really think about it like when you kind of sit back he's going over his entire childhood what happened to him like the world he was sucked into and the reasons he got out his relationship with alcohol and drugs everyone he knows his relationship with alcohol and drugs his relationship with murder and crime everyone he knows his relationship with murder and crime um and then the societal implications as to why this happens and why it happened to him and why he got out and what we may want to do about it. Um, I've never heard an album that covers that much ground and that paints such a picture. I, I almost didn't have any more questions about who he is after listening to this one album about him, which that's never happened for me. I've never heard something that sounded so... Uh, le- so encompassing of a of a person um it's so deeply 
describes everything about him. And then obviously with To Pimp a Butterfly, it describes more about him when he's older. But this album introduced most of us to him. Uh, so he had to establish a lot in it. And it doesn't feel like it's exposition. It feels like it, this is a person who just needs to tell someone. It's It feels like we, he's talking to a therapist, which is something that happens across a lot of his work that I love so much about him. It, it, it feels like urgent. The album has such an urgency to it that I feel like is almost taken for granted because To Pimp a Butterfly came along and it was a sound that we had never heard before. And it was making statements that were huge, like massive statements. Uh, and that does make it maybe the greatest rap album of all time, but I don't think it makes it the best. There's a big difference. The best quarterback of all time is not the greatest quarterback of all time. Both of them are Tom Brady. I, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I rest my case, Your Honor. Uh, <laughs> all right. And I win. I got to call the fight. I got to call the fight because right. we're already ding, at ding, 20, ding. 23 minutes. That was a clean ass fight. That was clean. It's gonna get dirtier as oh the my go. god. Because I think that we Very both respect civil. and love both of these albums. Hunter, so. yeah. Hunter called dibs on to Pimp that. Butterfly. Well, I gotta <laughs> you had say, a good representation for good kid. Though. I, I mean, I, can't. I gotta say, you put on a really good argument, Drew. And I'm not gonna reveal my pick until the end, but I'm having a tough time picking a winner because uh, obviously. Uh, Hunter, you brought up the scope of To Pimp a Butterfly and how this album tackles the biggest questions about... I mean, literally, the album cover is a bunch of black people hanging a white... Like, with a white dude on a noose in front of the White House. Well, I've already like, called the fight, so I'm not okay, taking right, that into right, it. All right, okay, okay, okay. okay, 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 okay <laughs> that is okay. not part of the argument. I'm just rubbing okay, that yeah. from the record. Ernest is covering his ears. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you brought up all of these great points about how he's tackling these big questions about just the black community, the black America as a whole. But, Drew, you brought up all these other amazing points about Kendrick Lamar as a man and, and his story and his life and his upbringing. I mean, these are two very different albums. They're both very similar because they're made by the same artist. But one is so much more broad and the other one's so much more personal and 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 yeah just kind of laser focus on like this one man's experience so you you guys both did a really really amazing job uh standing by each point here and i took a lot of notes and I am. Yeah, you well, were furiously writing like a stenographer. <laughs> I will reveal. I don't know if that's recorded on the podcast or not. No, I got. I don't I have a. Hear you, I could hear you furiously typing the entire time while we were talking. I I don't so. have a new MacBook, so I'm not like clack 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 clack. <laughs> have you heard the new MacBook keyboards? Yeah, They're very, horrible. <laughs> yeah, I have a nice Dell soft keyboard. So shout out to uh, Dell, the sponsor of this podcast. Yeah, this this podcast is brought to you by Modelo. Uh, drink responsibly. So. A lot of great points. Um, obviously, I really liked all of uh, Hunter's points about the um, the the fact that this album is so ambitious sonically and how it incorporates all this future jazz stuff. But with Drew, I I really liked the the you brought up some really amazing points about how this is the, the an origin story for Kendrick and 
I really like the 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 that final point you made about it feeling like a therapy session. I'd never really thought of it that yeah. way. I guess it's like, you know, my argument is if you like something like eighth grade and his is more broad, like if you like bright or oh, one of those. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, I'm the bright of this yeah, podcast. I know, I know that you can't count that point into your record, but, <laughs> but you, I'm you're like eighth grade yeah, greater than like, but the, bright. Yeah, he's writing it all. The other, the other thing, the other thing that you brought up, Hunter, is just the, the the it was a great rebuttal to the listenability argument that these songs into Pimp Butterfly they do work as these uh, these pieces of this larger story that he's telling, but they also work as songs too. Just yeah, that's, individual I mean that songs. was my whole point was that well. Good Kid has a lot of good singles. I think that Pimp Butterfly is a better album. Mm. And we'll I'll reveal my thoughts on that at the end. So let's get to our next fight. What here. is the next All right, one? So I'll I'll lead the next one then. It is what is or no, sorry. Pitch a pre two thousands movie. Based or sorry, pitch a movie <laughs> based on a pre two thousands. No, no, pitch a TV show. Sorry, almost <laughs> there. Pitch a TV. This show. is called an unreliable narrator in in TV and movies. I I I closed the Google Doc for a second, but I have it back up. Pitch the best TV adaptations of a pre two thousands movie. There we go. So, Hunter, you're gonna open first. All right. So picture this. Mm. HBO, the season finale ends of Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. We're saying there it says, coming this fall to HBO. We see Nikolai Coster-Waldo, Jamie from Game of Thrones, probably the best actor of the entire show, mm. leading a show. He's walking through a dystopian future. Do you know where I'm going with this? I don't think you do. He's trying to investigate a murder. His sidekick, Lee fucking Pace. Uh They're walking through this neo-LA Japanese dystopian future. Okay. Okay. Blade Runner the series. Blade Runner the show. Whoa. Okay. I'm... My way, I know that Blade Runner 2049 just came out a couple years ago. What I'm more interested in for a TV show is the original Blade Runner. I think that that has a lot more of a world building view than the Blade Runner 2049. This is going to start off, um, like I say, uh, Jamie from Game of Thrones is the lead detective. His, his sidekick, Lee Pace. Such a perfectly symmetrical face. <laughs> He's a replicant. He is his replicant sidekick. There is a revolt building by, and we're going to kind of flip the roles here, gender roles, Nicole Kidman playing the replicant who has achieved higher sentience to realize the point where she is breaking away from the mold of not just being another replicant. She is leading this whole army of revoltants. Nikolai has to kind of lead this whole execution of trying to find her, this kind of cat and mouse game that they have going on, 
why I think this could be a true show is because, first of all, the head writer and showrunner, I'm not using Denis Villeneuve, of course, because he made 2049. I'm not going to use any kind of cheats or anything like that. Instead, I'm using who I think is even better, Alex Garland. Mm. He has already mm. shown through Ex Machina that he has this ability to capture what the whole contemplation of existence and what consciousness is in a movie like Ex Machina. And he showed the world-building abilities of a movie like Annihilation. We're going to have him build this world of this dystopian L.A. future that we see, this neo-dystopian L.A. future that we see here. And Nicole Kidman leading this whole revolt. Can I ask a, well, a I quick that, question? I think yes. I missed this. You said this is on HBO. You're pitching this to HBO. It's on HBO. Okay. Why? Because and the reason I'm pitching us on HBO is because one, HBO likes to dip their hand back in the bag that they already have. They like to re-dip into properties into guys that they already have. So they're like, oh shit, let's just drop Jamie from Game of Thrones right into this after <laughs> Game of Thrones ends. Um, we're gonna have him be the lead detective. Why I think this could be a whole series is because I think that by season two, season three. Lee Pace could be the lead of the show. And his whole struggle of, I'm a replicant, I'm here to serve the government, but now I hear all these things that the Nicole Kidman replicant is pitching towards me, and it's really preaching to me and to my own like prepubescent cognizance that I am building on my own. And I think that this could be a show much... It could be kind of a Breaking Bad type of show, except with two different characters, where we see the birth of two different true leads. And maybe it won't... And, like, eventually they could even become at odds with each other. Um, I just really think... And maybe, I mean, there's a whole even subplot between Nikolai thinking that he is a replicant of his own, much like the original Blade Runner. I just feel like if you're going to adapt a pre-2000s movie, it has to involve a huge world. And what better world to dive into than the Blade Runner world? Awesome. Okay, Drew, let's hear yours. We're, we're on a similar page here. Okay. So I, I had a lot of thoughts about what to adapt because we're talking pre-2000 movies. Um, I had a lot of ground rules for myself. Uh, it can't be too iconic of a movie. As, or particularly, it can't have too iconic of a role. If we were to replace a Tom Cruise, I would automatically hate whatever it is. If they made like a Top Gun movie, I'd be like, yeah, Tom Cruise isn't in it. Fuck that. So I came up with, I think, the perfect adaptation. Gattaca. Fucking Gattaca. All right. Gattaca! Yeah. So we're in a similar arena here. Um, so the plot of Gattaca, if you don't know, listeners, uh, in the future... Uh, eugenics are common, but only for the upper class. Like uh, Babies are crafted to be near-perfect beings if you're upper class and you can afford this practice. So it's the norm. Uh, Vincent Freeman, who is our lead, originally played by Ethan Hawke, assumes the identity of another man, played by Jude Law, who is this paralyzed, depressed uh, former golden boy who got into an accident. Uh, and he does it to get a job at Gattaca, 
which is the space agency. It is the place you work if you want to travel to space and work in space travel. So here's why it's the perfect adaptation. Like I would not blink if this got announced like tomorrow. Like, hey, you know, some big like Netflix, Hulu, HBO, they're picking up a Gattaca reimagining. Uh, number one, the tone. Kind of like Blade Runner. This is a moody, it's artsy, it's a serious sci-fi movie. How many fucking shows do we have just like that right now? We have more sci-fi on TV right now than we've ever had in history. Um, Mr. Robot, things like that, Westworld, anything. Uh, basically, it makes sense for this to exist right now. Because we are talking about a 2019 adaptation of of a yeah. movie that's older that was very important as well because if we're doing like old movies i was gonna do planes trains and auto- automobiles into a sitcom because that's just too easy uh but we're talking a current show uh like you said now we're getting into serialized television if you if you'd like to do that and that's what i would like to do uh the other thing is the themes in gattaca have only exploded in terms of relevance to society today uh eugenics in particular like the modifying babies is actually possible right now. It's kind of hush hush, but this technology will pop up in the news once or twice a week that a baby in China was crafted. Like they fixed something about it before it was even born. This is only going to be more relevant. Uh, the other big theme in it is the growing class divide. Um, that's a massive part of Gattaca is the, the haves and the have nots have gotten to such a level that you cannot become a have if you're a have not. It's impossible unless you do what our lead does and impersonate a have. <laughs> um, the other thing is the freshness of it because Gattaca bombed at the box office. It did not do well, but over time it, it maintained a, a cult following. A lot of people grew to like Gattaca. Uh, in addition to that, uh, it, it basically means that the non- uh, essential items in the movie can be discarded without rage and it also means that like Ethan Hawke is great in the movie uh, Jude Law is great in the movie these are not iconic roles for either of them they can be replaced without rage they can be replaced without anyone being pissed off about it uh, and that was really important to me uh, so it's extremely recastable uh, it's also who would you cast do you have anyone in mind so if we want to really bring a light to class divide issues I, we could go with our lead because our lead has to be a knockoff of an attractive person, kind of. That's what Ethan Hawke is, uh, and that's what the character calls for. You have to be like kind of an attractive guy in the right light. Uh, how about John Boyega? Because we also it's our lead. This is the guy we're following. We're getting into an ensemble piece, but he's so likable. We want him to win whenever we see John Boyega. Uh, in that case, if we go down that path, the the other, you know, the friend makes sense. Jude Law is a, he's going to be in the show, basically. Uh, we need someone who kind of looks like our lead, but honestly, Ethan Hawke and Jude Law don't look anything alike. They're just like both white dudes. So like the book, the book is wide open. Daniel Kaluuya, we need a depressed person. We need someone with great darkness within. Uh, and if we want to go with the whites, which, hey, maybe we do, um, knock off attractive guys. Hmm. Daniel Radcliffe as our lead trying to shed his past <laughs> of Harry Potter. But here's, here's the moneymaker. Well, you got to pick one. 
you can't pit you can't pitch me more than one. Yes, I can. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. TV pitches you can you don't even have to pitch anything. TV pitches are really vague. From in you're the, just providing multiple avenues. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, I'm giving choices okay. because we we might not be able to get any of these people. Just like Hunter might not be able to get his people. You know, it's all in the air. Okay. Of who you can achieve. I I, I want to hear you take down each other's pitches. I am not I'm not done though. Okay, go. So Jerome is the name of this this depressed, paralyzed former pretty boy. He's pale, he's been inside. He's a, a former pretty boy, maybe trying to ditch the image of a pretty boy. It's Robert Pattinson. Oh my god. That is the, per- the literally the perfect casting. Uh he Robert Pattinson basically is what Jude Law was in 1998. Like it's the same guy almost. Uh, other characters, love interest, originally played by Uma Thurman, Irene. Uh, we need a, a chick with a no bullshit look. She like she she has a look of don't lie to me because the whole show is about our main character like infiltrating this world that he doesn't belong in. Uh, so a no bullshit look is important. Tessa Thompson on the table, great look about her, just like that. Mackenzie Davis on the table, great look about her. Uh, even Olivia Cook, I think, would be great for that role. We need people in their 20s. That's who I'm focusing on for, for any of these roles. Anyway, so what happens in the show? Uh, I'll go over really quick. It is serialized, but there are things that you will see episode to episode. That's why this show is dynamic. It can last as long as you want, kind of. It doesn't have to end, and it doesn't have to keep going if we feel like it needs to end. Uh, so we have the plotline of him infiltrating the world. Our pilot starts with him meeting up, meeting our Robert Pattinson character and like planning to infiltrate the world. He gets in. Uh, in the movie Gattaca, there are investigators who are always on his trail because he is using another man's DNA and they know that someone is a fraud. Uh, you have him getting this dream job of his to work at Gattaca and eventually work towards space travel. But also he's like getting an education kind of. I like that angle. I would bring that out more than the movie did of getting an education. I wanted to be like taking classes almost with all these other people. So we get a dynamic with his coworkers. Uh because I want to get to know his friends. I want to get to know who works at Gattaca. I want to get to know the investigators. I want to get to know... We also have a geneticist in the movie who knows about his secret. That's awesome. Um, here's here's an... Int- well, I'll, I'll save that for later. But I think this show has an endless amount of things that can happen. And the things that happen at the end of Gattaca, spoiler alert, don't have to happen at the end of our show. They can happen at any point. Because uh, Ethan Hawke goes to space toward the end of Gattaca, which is a big deal. But... He could just do that at the end of any season and then come back. And then also Jerome uh, kills himself. Spoiler. Sorry. At the end of Gattaca. That can also, that would be a massive end of season cliffhanger. That would be incredible. But it's all in the middle of this infiltration, almost like a spy show, but it's set in a dystopian future uh, that matches the tone of every big show that's being sold right now. Love it. Love it. All right. Let's hear some takedowns. All right. So you did. You took some of my peripheral characters that I had, and I was kind of upset by all of them that you took. <laughs> Specifically... Oh, you mean the actors? Just actors. You kept naming people, and I was like, fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> fuck you. Daniel Kaluuya, mm. specifically. Mm. I really want him to play a key role as almost a citizen in the society that's kind of picking apart things that are happening in my Blade Runner universe. But the main thing that I wanted to pick apart in the world that you are describing is like, yeah, this could just go on for seasons and seasons. My thing, I'm going 
more into my show that I have with a, you could say, like a Breaking Bad kind of a mindset. I have like a four seasons, we're in and we're out. I have like more of a confined story that I want to tell with my thing where it's like I can tell this over the course of these four seasons and then that's it. I have an end game in mind with my show where this is where I want it to go. Um, that's kind of one of the main things, differences between uh, my and your show from what I can tell that we're pitching. While Gattaca, the series, sounds interesting, I don't think that the world is as interesting as a Blade Runner universe. I think there's so much more room in a Blade Runner-type universe for peripheral characters. I think that if there is a subplot with a Daniel Kaluuya as a citizen investigating what's going on with the government itself and just what's happening with society as a whole, seeing as, I mean, we're in this kind of a future where there isn't really a solidified government. Um, as far as who's going to play, like, let's say the quote-unquote, let's call it the Jared Leto role, because I don't know the name of the character in the original <laughs> Blade Runner, but, um, you know, the guy who's owning this whole facility uh, full of replicants... I kind of picture them as almost a Tessa Thompson type character that somebody who would be able to both has a very attractive it's all about the symmetrical face too about it's all about like that they just look classically beautiful by like old school standards and that's kind of something that draw me to Thompson is the wide eyes and everything else. Something like that. A character like that who could be infused with certain, like almost like cyborg esque, that they have all these kind of genetic infusions with uh, replicants themselves. That's why I, I, I mean, less so talking about your Gattaca show, because that does sound interesting, but I feel like my Blade Runner pitch, I am all in on that like so you're I saying am... that you like yours better than you like mine <laughs> yes, yes interesting okay I'm saying. Um, <laughs> let the record I'm show saying, <laughs> i'm saying that blade runner has a better universe also i don't know if you're gonna get to it who your showrunner is do you have a mind to take over this world i actually do and it? this is not cheating because they are not fully attached to anything how about fucking benioff and weiss they are attached to Star Wars, but yeah, but that's we'll yeah. pull them away from Star Wars for this Amazon Prime show. Yeah, okay. that was shade thrown towards you. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. Give a shit. definitely didn't. Are say you it. thinking? Um, didn't are bring you... up Amazon at any point. Yeah, <laughs> did not say that. Yeah, I didn't think you did. <laughs> we can go. Are you pitching well, to the, a specific? Well, here's the issue. If we're big budget, I was wondering if HBO would even say yes to something like a Blade Runner or a Gattaca because they have Westworld and they're apparently still really trying with Westworld. So are they going to introduce almost I competition? Gonna, I'm almost going to say they're going to give up on Westworld. I I don't think they are. I it doesn't. Think, and it's they're not doing Watchmen. Well, now. it's not that the show but critically Westworld took a huge drop in season. Oh, two, definitely. So. Like it's worse. But as far as like pitching right now to pitch a big budget sci-fi show to a network that has one and doesn't have a ton of content, it would make more sense for a someone that wants to compete with Westworld because it would be easy to overtake Westworld. So like a Netflix. Imagine if they put out a good show. That would be so. Yeah, that would be what? interesting. Go ahead and pitch this to CBS All Access. You do you. Man. That's what I'm like, saying. Yeah. We can pitch this to anyone because it's such a dynamic idea. As far as your Breaking Bad point goes, uh, that show very famously had a beginning and an end in mind, and then the middle was whatever they wanted it to be. 
So it's it wasn't like an open and shut case. It was like, hey, if we get renewed, there will be more seasons, and then we'll figure out what the fuck is going to happen, and then we'll end it when it gets canceled or if they let us to choose when. But it's still... Most shows are like that. Most shows aren't going to say no to more seasons. And I love this show's idea because it doesn't have to. Um, this is going to sound crazy, but it, if we need to spice things up, which of course you do, it's television. You always want things to be interesting. Have you ever seen Suits on USA Network? A little bit. Suits is Gattaca, but at a law firm. It's a man infiltrating a law firm under false credentials. And the, the issues with that show are that it is episodic. It's not a serialized story. There are bigger arcs, of course. Um, but the playbook that they have for keeping shit interesting is exactly what I would want to do. Because it's not just a story. Because you can't have like five years of him being like, are they going to catch me? That doesn't last for six years. What does last is meeting everyone else at Gattaca. Establishing relationships with other people. The interrelationships of those other people with each other. Not even just our main character. After a while, the show Suits was not just about the lead. It's an ensemble piece. And that's not even in an interesting fucking world. It's at a law firm. This is in fucking... This is in the future. And it's at a space company. <laughs> um, so that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, also, I didn't even mention we're going to have frequent visits of our lead. He lives like at Gattaca, but he just like in the movie, he makes visits back to Jerome, who's depressed in the wheelchair. Uh, if we want to keep him around, we're going to make him funnier because that is a very depressing character. We can give him comic relief. He does have funny moments in Gattaca, but he is overall too depressing. So either we make him interesting and funny and maybe a little more able or we just kill him. <laughs> like, And the other thing is... Um, Gattaca very heavily relies on extremely cool flashbacks to uh, Vincent's childhood. It involves issues with his brother or just issues with overcoming the fact that he is not, he is a nobody. His brother Anton in the movie was genetically altered and he was not. Uh, so we have flashbacks to play with um, that can explain any uh, amount of our character's story that we want to. Um, there's so much material available for this show it doesn't have to go on for on and on and on it can end whenever it would be best for the show but there is an infinite amount of things to keep it interesting just baked into what Gattaca is so everything that you're describing about the world I feel like could apply to the Blade Runner universe except I feel like it applies more so to the Blade Runner universe I just I feel like there's so much more of a sandbox to play with with Blade Runner. Whenever you talk about, we could spend a three, four episode arc just with the leader of these replicants kind of revolting their revolution, and even something just like a household bot that you would have at your house to come and like, like almost like a maid, like realizing that they have their own kind of sentience of themselves and going to join this revolution. I just feel like. There's so much more that you can play with in this world here that we have. And just the aesthetic of it all. Kind of this like dark griminess that you have that's almost like these broken toys kind of coming together. I think that that applies so much more to the Blade Runner world. And I feel like that makes it so much more interesting as a whole piece about something that... About kind of a thing that anybody can see themselves in as kind of a broken if you've gone through anything in your life any kind of serious trauma you can kind of apply yourself to these broken toys that are 
mm-hmm. have pretty much been used and have been applied these kind of uh, symbolisms as something that are just meant to be used and then they're just a tool and they have no purpose. Like they just serve this one purpose and that's it okay. with their lives. Well, Gattaca has more of that, I think, because it's about humans who are. It can be about humans who are poor instead of like robots who are. I'm not theoretically. Saying, no, no, no. But I'm not just saying that it's just about robots. I'm saying that oh, that's just, just a know. subject of this universe. There are still humans. In oh, this I know, world. I know. But to that's... call it more grounded is kind of insane. When Gattaca is a more grounded universe, it's set in a closer future than Blade Runner is. Like straight up, it's set in a future. What year is Blade? Is Greg, I, say. I don't know Blade what year it is. In, in I'm talking about technologically. 20, Blade Runner is set in 2019. So that's <laughs> that's right now. It's set in the that's present. That's happening right now. Yeah. No, I, but it is. This is a movie about the class, or a, a movie and a show about the class divide specifically. It's not just like they can find themselves in characters. Is that the characters are them? Uh, we can have more characters infiltrating the world if we want. We can explore the world outside of Gattaca if we want. We can have him go back home to his family because we will introduce them through flashbacks. Um, because the world outside of Gattaca wasn't fleshed out very well, and I think it might be fascinating to see what people who are not altered might be like. I got to call the fight. Do you guys have any last um, quick thoughts? Yeah, I have a few more points that I didn't get to. Uh, well, actually, just one. I, there's one non-negotiable casting choice. I'll spend the whole budget on it. Uh, I want our, our guy's best friend at Gattaca to be Will Poulter, a.k.a. Eyebrows Kid, a.k.a. The Acid Kid from Bandersnatch. I, I need this kid in it because he, he's funny and he can play a super genius very well. He did it in Bandersnatch. You would spend all of a them lot. Are, yeah, I would fu- fuck all of it. Oh, well, the other point I had was Gattaca didn't use much CG for a sci-fi show. Uh, so budgetary constraints are amazing for this because, A, we can go to space. We can afford to do that, and it would look better than Gattaca ever looked. Um, and, B, it doesn't necessarily need to because this is grounded sci-fi. Uh, this is sci-fi that doesn't require leaps. It just requires jumps. So, I mean, you keep talking about humans. I don't want to get past the humans that are going to be in this Blade Runner world because, like I said, a Daniel Kaluuya kind of... Uh, like not necessarily Daniel Kaluuya, but character like him. One of the things with him is I kind of want to take a note out of the HBO's playbook and take a lot of unknowns. That's why I didn't name a lot of actors in this thing is because I think that's one of the things that makes HBO show special is that you have a Kit Harrington yeah, who exactly. breaks through. That's why I didn't get into any into the investigators or anybody because I want it to be people that we, I want it to we, be a lot of unknowns that break through. I'm going to um, discover people. So Ernest, one of the things that I. <laughs> Like, I just keeps thinking about in the show that I think that you could spend an entire season with is this whole idea of almost human inadequacy. When we're in this world that's not in the too, too far distant future, in this kind of dystopian society, almost this desire as a human to feel like you're inadequate. When there are, human, when there are creatures that are out there that are literally perfect, and you kind of still aspiring to reach that point even though you have what is human consciousness and everything else if there's something else like that that is perfect and also is achieving consciousness what does that mean for you as a human what does that mean for us as a society as a whole like where does that leave us Mm. and i think that that's why the blade Runner universe is more interesting just because i think that 
not only do we have these grand ideas that I think that it still can ground itself in a world where we're still kind of finding our place, which is something that humans day to day are still finding. Maybe yeah. on less of a granular scale, but you can still attach yourself to this thing in some of the ways that some of the best sci-fi and fantasy does. I think you just described Gattaca. I don't think right. so. I got to call it. <laughs> I got to call it. That's that. that's the fight. That's the fight. Great points. Clean fight. Uh, Drew, I think you did a really good job of making the show like malleable, you know, not putting it in this box where like it has to be on this network with this vibe and this approach. It can kind of fit into whatever mold they want to put it in, which well, could prove to be it could prove to 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 to. to you know, depending on on if it's a Netflix show show or if it's a network show or anything like an FX or something like that, that they would bring their approach to that. I think that was a great approach. Mine involves with, lots of nudity, so it has to be on HBO. And well, yeah, with you, I think you did a great job of of just kind of selling the world and selling this like Blade Runner brand, the sweet sweet IP that everybody wants. You know, <laughs> Gattaca is not that IP. At all, but yeah, that's but, why I chose it. I exactly. didn't want to just be like, "Hey, uh, freaking, what about uh, the Avengers?" <laughs> but one thing is, it does sound very similar to Westworld, and, <laughs> and a lot of the things that that Westworld is doing. Granted, I really think Blade Runner would be a lot better than Westworld. That's and a hot that, take. I just think that <laughs> I think, I think that Blade. I think that there's so much more there's of an expansive universe. There, yeah. It doesn't have to be on HBO. May, Grant, this could be an Apple show that I'm pitching. We don't. Gross. I, w- I almost wanted to don't pitch, pitch it, that. I almost wanted to pitch it towards Apple, but because of their presentation, we got nothing about my, what they're my show to is do. on Crackle only. <laughs> <laughs> my show is only on CISO. RIP. No, but like I wanted to pitch this towards something else, but HBO is the only show that I could ima- is the only network that I could imagine going as dark as I want this right. to go. Mm. And I yeah. do and I, I almost feel and like the budget too. It, the budget because money. I want it to have a big budget, like, and I want it to. I have this grand idea for it that I want it to be on something that has money to throw around. Grid that could be Apple. In a year from now, we could be talking about Apple might break through as the next big HBO yeah, that's willing to throw around R-rated but stuff, I did like, but we don't know. We don't I did know. like how you guys took these two different roads. You had like the set sort of like very serialized story in mind, and you had this more kind of episodic well, approach that you can kind of like build this this established premise and then kind of like do these more singular episodic yeah but it is very serialized it's just that i don't want to give an episode count for like at episode 32 this is going to happen right because you know every move every show is on a clock that it doesn't know it has i don't i don't necessarily think that it has a clock to my show but it's more so that i already have an ending uh beginning and ending in mind and and these these larger arcs that are gonna expand entire seasons Right. So that was a great clean fight. Good job, guys. I will reveal my findings right after this third and final fight. Assemble the ideal pop punk band lineup. So with uh, as far as rules go for this one, I was going kind of like timeless, like you're plucking them from their ideal year. Okay. because if you're making a band in 2019, you don't want old people in it if it's pop punk because youth is integral. And I wanted to be able to choose from older bands. So you're you're plucking them from an ideal period, kind of. We're time traveling. Yeah, yeah. 
Anyway, so go. go. You want to go? Okay. Do you want to go back and forth in this or with uh, who's doing what? I feel like we should. I don't maybe know. like, maybe say like, okay, who's your drummer? Then who's your? Do we have the same bassist? drummer? Who's your drummer? Did you get cheeky? My drummer. I is bet he did. Andy Hurley. I knew it. I knew he was going to do Andy Hurley. <laughs> so. My whole thing here, because we're forming a dream band, and you can't have a drummer who's going to get, who's going to take away too much of the limelight away from other artists in the band. So you can't have a Travis Barker. You can't have somebody who's going to outshine everybody else. You have to have somebody else who's both willing to stand out in certain moments and also kind of fade out in the background and just lay down sick beats for everybody else to play on top of. And that's why I think that Andy Hurley is kind of the perfect pop-punk drummer because he's both able to lay down an iconic beat while also in other songs and other moments within a song be able to kind of fade away and he can still have those moments during a breakdown where he can kind of show off his prowess and just be like, yeah, I'm one of the best pop up drummers for, ever. For anyone in the audience that does not know, this is the Fallout Boy drummer. Yes, the drummer Made of Fallout Boy. Made two of the most iconic, like pop punk beats of all time with "Sugar We're Going Down" "Dance Dance." Oh, we never said. Also, the other rule was you can only take one member per band. One okay. member per that's, band. Yeah, that's very important. One max. Um, I was almost prepared for you to take Andy. <laughs> I don't know why. I just had it in my head. I, I was like, I, I'm just gonna get cheeky. What you've done though. I want to take you back to the year 2012. The Oklahoma City Thunder have Kevin Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, and James Harden. They somehow they, lost. <laughs> they talk themselves out of making it work with this trio, and they get rid of Harden. That's what you've just done. If you have the chance to take one of the greatest drummers full stop ever, you ha- you got to do it. Um, as far as understated beats goes, is like like hogging the spotlight or anything. I would point anyone toward their self-titled album from 03. That album doesn't go hard at all, and he's doing very unbelievably good understated. So you're going with Travis Barker. Yeah, yeah, it's it's Travis, no question. He's the only pop punk drummer who is one of the best drummers ever to play the drums. That like period. Andy Hurley is an amazing pop punk drummer, but he doesn't hog the spotlight. He just takes it when he needs it. Um, He's better in like a harder pop punk scenario, which is why my band is a harder pop punk band. Uh, he fits perfectly into my dynamic that I've crafted. And also he is fully capable of sitting back. He did for an entire album. Think about the beat to like, I miss you. That's one of the my favorite beats ever. And it's so soft. It's so quiet, but it's also so hard to play if you're like i you know i've tried to recreate a lot of travis beats and they're almost entirely impossible to play if you live under a rock and you don't know who travis barker is he's the drummer for for blink 182 and yes with blink he had a lot of room to be in the limelight for mostly because tom DeLong. yeah because they're because they're yeah (laughs) the other two members are not hello there picking up their slack (laughs) But when he needed to sit back, which was plenty of the time, when the other members wanted to get softer in their tone, he got softer in his tone. He is a professional studio quality drummer, so he can play anything that is required of him. Um, Can we hear a quick Travis Barker rebuttal before you introduce your next member? I think, no, I'm not going to take away anything with Travis Barker. I think Travis Barker is amazing. I think, I honestly think that some of the best 
music that Travis Barker has ever played is on hip hop beats, though, is whenever he's playing a song with Jay Z or something like that. I think that that's where he thrives is whenever he can be in the limelight. I think that he kind of, while I won't say that he doesn't have good beats, you don't necessarily notice his beats as much on quiet songs where I'm like, Anytime I listen to a Fall Out Boy song, I'll listen to it and I can still like kind of like I want to like drum along to the beat because there's something that's about Andy Hurley's playing style about how it perfectly fits the genre. I feel like Travis Barker doesn't necessarily fit the genre in which he was pegged in. And that's why I didn't pick him mm-hmm. is because I'm going for and also I'm going to say I'm going for somebody who's going to uh congeal with the rest of my band um i am going for a little bit more of a punk sound which is going to lead me right into my bassist my bassist i'm taking straight out of dookie i'm taking mike dern hey guess what bitch so am i whoa oh shit it's got to be done so we can agree here yeah mike dern is legendary mike dern is i think that he is the greatest bassist in punk history like i really think that he is just we can't really rebuttal Man, each other. Man, this sucks. Here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> fuck. Green Day, by I, the way. We're both pandering towards Ernest, our Green Bay, well, Green Day boy fan here. I uh, wasn't even, I wasn't even thinking about that at first, and then I was like, oh, this is awesome because <laughs> <laughs> he's yeah. But I really like. I have a great case for Mike in in infinite ways. Like, first of all, there are like not many songs in music history with iconic bass riffs. Like, that's just not a thing you very, see very often. And he has a lot of those. Think about Longview. Think about, like, yeah, I was about to say Longview. Oh, yeah. Longview is a bass riff that carries the entire song. Yeah. A lot of the songs off of Dookie are carried off of a bass riff. Like, there's a couple of songs on Dookie in which, like, the drums don't even kick in until, like, a minute into the song. It's just, like, bass and guitar. Yeah. And that's something, even going into American Idiot, like, that's something that even in some of the more ballad songs that you have on there, in something like, um, um... Jesus, in something like Jesus of Suburbia, that we have like uh, something we write where down you can that he still forgot feel... Jesus of Suburbia. <laughs> he doesn't know the name. Of the song <laughs> um, even in a song like Jesus of Suburbia, you can like feel his bass in that song, carrying that song more so than anything that like Trey or Billy do in that song. Like no, that's true. He really does carry so he much is, of what classic Green Day it yeah. does. I guess yeah, I guess we'll just mo- both make our cases anyway. Uh it's it's like a trope to say that the bassist is like the unsung hero of a band because they're always unsung whether yeah. or not they're heroes. <laughs> but he truly is. He is always he can carry a song and he can blend perfectly. Like American Idiot didn't call for complicated bass anymore. It didn't call for prominent bass, but he's still doing complicated bass and he's still doing prominent bass even if it's not as like important to the song's DNA. That leads into my my next point which was going to be uh we're we're talking about, you know, this these are band members, strong personalities colliding. Uh arguments can start. Mike Dirt has been in Green Day since 1986. That's when they formed. He's been in a band for 33 years. I think it's safe to say he's an agreeable guy. Yeah. I think it's safe to say that... He's willing to both (laughs) make the leading riff and also kind of do 
stuff in the background, which I think that's, I mean, that was my whole point with Andy Hurley is that you have to have, if you're assembling a dream team, like group of guys, it has to be somebody who's both willing to have their moment in the spotlight and also be a peripheral character. They can be the fourth most important member in a certain song and that's okay. Um, yeah, do you want to move on since we both are Yeah, this is kind here? of a stalemate. Yeah, so yeah I might as well. Um, I'm willing to bet a billion dollars right now that we do not have the same lead guitarist and singer I bet yours right is Coheed's lead guitarist. Am I right? So, my lead guitarist here. I'm going to throw you guys off here because it's not even the lead guitarist of this band. My lead guitarist and backup vocalist is... Claudio Sanchez. Mm. Whoa. As you guys most of, notably of known Coheed. of Coheed and Cambria. Cambria. <laughs> so why I chose him is because Claudio, I think through Coheed's music, has shown that he can do something like he can make craft this perfect riff like something in a welcome home or a favor house Atlantic where he can both play the lead. He can play the iconic lead of a song and he can also just play rhythm guitar whenever you need him to. Because pop punk classic is just a four-man group. That's what we're going off of. It's just a four-man duo. Four-man quadruo. Um, that's a term. Um. Uh, write that down that he doesn't. he's making up words. Quadrilogy. <laughs> um. So why I have him here, because I really was struggling with this about who to have in this group. I had somebody like a Ray Toro of Mad oh, Chemical Romance dude, fame. I wanted him so bad. I thought about having him in there, but the thing is, is that I feel like he almost fades into the back. Like, how many iconic riffs are there in MCR? It's not a lot. Like, he has a lot of good like chord progression and stuff like that, but I think that you can both get the riffs the chord progressions, and the backup vocals. Claudio Sanchez, I know you guys aren't the biggest fans of him. He would be the most overqualified backup singer of all time. Mm. Think about that. Like, you can't... What? Who's your backup singer going to be? Well, Is so, it Mike Dirt? So like, here's come the, on. Here's the question. Are we playing into, like, the fact that he would say no to doing this? <laughs> I mean, I'm playing, I'm playing as in I can just pick them out of a pack and that they'll just hmm. go right along with okay it. i didn't do that i didn't want to i didn't want to relegate somebody like if i had pete wentz as my bassist but then my front man is also a lyricist one of them has to not write lyrics and that is going to rub them the wrong way kind of like i needed my band to have a uh, sensible chemistry i but the thing is, is that claudio actually doesn't like he like there are some songs in which travis the lead guitarist of Coheed and Cambria will kind of take over the reins, yeah. and Claudio's okay with that. Yeah, but is, so it, that's but why is I he okay that, with being not a front man? I'm thinking of them as making, like, they're going to be the Them Crooked Vultures. Like, they're going to put out, like, an album and then kind of do their thing. Maybe they'll play a couple shows, and then, like, that's kind of what most super groups are, is that you kind of put them together, they'll make a few songs together, they'll jam out, maybe they'll play a couple shows, but then that's kind of it. Mm. Super groups don't stay together. Like, there's a reason why they're super groups is because they all have their own personalities and their own uh, kind of things that they want to bring to the table. That's why with Claudio, I think that for just bringing a super group together, I think that he could perfectly, he could make 
a riff that could carry an entire song. He could have that welcome home type of riff, that favor house Atlantic type of riff. But also, if you just needed him to just do some weird shit in the background, he could do that too. And he could sing harmonies really fucking well, better than most any other musician. Mm. So here is my guitarist. This is also, I was going to bet that you wouldn't have this guy. His name is Steve Sladkowski. He's the the guitarist of Pup. Whoa. I almost put the guitarist of Pup. Um, I didn't know what his name was, but I almost put him in yeah. here. Because I, I'm i not the biggest Pup fan in the world. I really like them, and I'm a, a fan of the new album, which just came out, which yep. we'll, we'll talk Great about at album. some point in the near future. Um, I The problems I have with their music are never Steve Sladkowski. This guy's a monster on the guitar. Um, he... I think that he transcends the genre in really interesting ways because you'll hear reverb in their music or other effects that you don't typically hear in pop punk. It's not just all about a crunchy overdrive guitar, um, even though a lot of the time it is about that, which obviously your your backbone of your band a lot of the time with pop punk is your guitar sound. He has such good clarity in his guitar. I watched a video where he breaks down like how his amp and his pedals work. He He knows it like... You know, like a trained musician, because that's what he is. He's immensely talented. His solos are unbelievably good. Uh, he plays, like I said, he plays harder uh, rock music in this band. Uh, and I have a, I actually even have a quote from a, a Reverb interview where they kind of like summarize why I love this guy's work. Uh, they say, sometimes he'll place a searing lead on top of the band's backing changes. At other times, the band seems to chase his frenetic, fuzzed out runs. And in many moments, he faithfully serves the song at hand with crystal clear chords or subtle atmospherics. Um, so if we're talking about a supergroup here, that's a, all I want. is the He's the most dynamic guitarist I could think of. He can literally do anything in the genre and outside of the genre, much like Travis can. Where Travis is great at sitting back, he's great at playing really basic pop punk beats and putting like a twist on it that only he can do. And he's good at playing understated, and he can just go fucking balls out. The exact same goes for Steve Sladkowski. He's immensely talented. So you want to know why I didn't pick Sleeves? Steve Sladkowski mm. is because I actually looked more into their songwriting and everything else. Because honestly, it was him, Ray Toro, and um, Claudio were like my three on like the short list. You know who writes a lot of those guitar, like a lot of their like iconic chord progressions isn't him. It's actually the lead vocals who plays backup guitar, Stephen Bobcock. Okay, so Bobcock. my my rebuttal to that point is if we need someone else to write a chord progression, I got someone. Like we're fine. <laughs> Who is your guy? My Who frontman, Gerard Way. Whoa. I I thought about Gerard Way. I am, I am this is a, of my chemical romance. Yeah. yeah, of MCR. This was a strong choice because Gerard Way is again what I'm going for. He's the most I think dynamic frontman in the genre because his band oftentimes exits the genre entirely while still being in the realm of pop and punk. Uh, he is a frontman. He's a lyricist. He can play rhythm guitar if we ever need him to. Uh, he's a songwriter. He's a composer. He does everything, and he also on top of that has I think my favorite voice in the genre uh, because. It ha it's one of my favorite rock voices of all time because it has something that someone like Patrick Stump 
doesn't have, even though I love Patrick Sum's voice. I'm sure he was on your short list, but you had to go with Andy Hurley, so you couldn't. Patrick Sum actually wasn't on my. <laughs> no, no, I actually I had it, I lowered it down to three, and Patrick Sum wasn't on that three, but he was on like my top ten. Yeah, he he's up. He has a good voice, but he doesn't have danger in his voice. He sounds like he's in a studio. Gerard Way has the danger element to his voice. He has this quality that I it's almost intangible. He can growl when the song calls for it. His voice cracks, but it sounds like it's on purpose every single time. Uh, his range is obviously insane. He goes all over the place. Mm. He hits notes. Uh, his yell singing is just as good as his regular singing. His low voice singing is just as good as his regular singing. He, he, he's all over the place doing it great. And if we need someone to write our songs, if we're just doing one album, I want this guy at his best because that's where we're taking him. At his best, he is so good at songwriting like it's almost fucking insane so i forgot to shout out when we were talking about drummers um one drummer i wanted to shout out who i really thought about doing was matt ulrich the drummer from the front bottoms because mm, yeah. i really yeah, I like him too i really almost put him as my drummer instead of hurley but i went with him um i went with hurley um i have uh i thought about putting pete wentz as my bassist i forgot to skip i skipped over these guys my singers was one of the hardest things to actually it's, it's nail. Tricky. So I my top three, whenever I went with them, I end with the one I went with. It was Brendan Urie. Mm-hmm. He was out there for me. Iconic voice, but it's almost like it was almost the Travis Barker effect, where his voice almost like it takes away from the other instruments yeah. because it's too good. He was also a little too theater for me personally. Haley Williams. She was up there for me. Haley Williams. Amazing voice, but a little bit too poppy. I went with a little bit more of a punk style. So, I landed on Dan Campbell, most notably from The Wonder Years. Mm. Mm, this guy. Yeah. Okay. Soupy, as he's known uh, amongst his fans. Campbell. Do you get Campbell chicken ale soup? Um, Dan Campbell, I think, is perfect for a pop punk band like this because in the band that I assembled... I think that he can both do, he has this very raw effect that he can do with his voice where it just seems like he's like almost screaming, but it just sounds so sweet. He has like this almost kind of, um, I mean, I, it almost feels bad to compare that to them uh, based on the current climate that we're in but a brand new effect write to that his down. voice write that down <laughs> <laughs> note it's compared to brand new he's immediately i out. was during this whole um, thing i was like i guess brand new's off the table <laughs> yeah no yeah no they can't put them in there yep <laughs> um but he has this ability where he can get so raw and visceral with his voice but there's also some of my favorite songs by the wonder years are like acoustic songs that he does where it's just him playing rhythm guitar and him singing and he like just puts it all out there with his voice i mean i just i can't like i his voice i think is my favorite like classic pop punk uh voice that you would want for a band like this where it's something that it's so um it's so dynamic that you can put it into all kinds of different things I think that, uh, I mean, really, if you guys want, like, an idea for what my pop-punk band would sound like, just listening to listen to Passing Through a Screen Door by The Wonder Years, and I think that that is the perfect song to show off all of his range because we have a bridge that really breaks down, like, kind of the slower, more acoustic beats 
and uh, sound like really tender that he has. And then right after that, we have this breakdown where he's just screaming into the microphone in this really powerful way that's moving. And that's why I just I couldn't I couldn't get past Dan Campbell. I just think that he is the perfect singer for this um, band that I'm assembling. That's fair. Uh, I was thinking a lot with Gerard about what he's bringing to the table, as I was with all these people. Gerard Way, you have the keyboard effect. I won't take that away from you that he plays piano. Yeah, he he plays everything. He's a, he literally a music composer. And if we're making one album, I, I I need him. Like I need he is carrying so much weight. When they, when MCR was great. He was why they were great. They have amazing musicians in their band, but he crafted the sound. He crafted the aesthetic of the band, and he let his bandmates cook with that sound. And that's why I love all my other band members, because, like you said, Steve isn't writing the music. Travis isn't writing the music, but he does write the drum parts, and he brings so much to the table on that part. If if I were to pitch the general vibe, the thing that sold me on Gerard and on this whole concept is watching the Black Parade is Dead live concert. It's on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Any anyone yeah, any listener, you gotta watch it. It's a it's a great concert. It's one of the best like rock concerts yeah, to like the, watch while you're not actually there. Exactly. This is why I was sold on Gerard. He is not just the best like composer, songwriter, anything like that. He is those things to me, but he's the best frontman. Period. He I, the way he commands the stage, they would have the best live show of anyone. He also crafts the aesthetic. We can go for maybe Black Parade, but I was thinking more like a White Stripes aesthetic, uh, kind of simple black, white, red colors. Well, that that leads into my big question here that can lead into your final thoughts. I really want to know I, the the front man is is gonna be the attention of the band. They're gonna be the the core of what people are ex- they they're the basis of their experience of these bands right uh i mean obviously you're going to have your people like gravitate to your other band members but i think the frontman is so indicative of what the the perception of what this band is in the public is going to be yes so i want to know hunter how is this band going to be different from the wonder years and drew how is this going to be different from my chemical romance so my whole thing that i went with with this band that i was assembling is all like puzzle pieces that all fit together that's why i didn't pick the best guitarist or the best drummer and that's kind of my concern with drew's band that he assembled is that it seems like he's going for they're too good he's picking the best people again i'd bring up the oklahoma city thunder they <laughs> fucked up and everyone agrees because if you have the best you make it work i don't know man stephen Adams is pretty solid and also you're um, acting like travis is some sort of like diva <laughs> like he's so fine with just like sitting back he sat behind two but... morons for 10 years he sat behind the dumbest idiots ever and he was totally fine with it like to be in a good band would be like the biggest refreshment in the world for Travis. I think Mark Hoppus is calling you right now. <laughs> okay. You're so judging him. I can't talk. I'm on, I'm on do not disturb. <laughs> okay. So I was like, my whole thing was that I was going for kind of like a them crooked vultures vibe. Like that's why I'm really coming back to them. Crooked vultures, I think have the best super group album of any super group that's ever made. That's actually like a published album. Um, so I know it's out of the genre, but I'm kind of going to that. And that's an album where if you look at, there's some people who listen to it and they say, Josh Holm, the lead singer for Queens of the Stone Age or 
is my favorite artist. Like, he's the one who stands out of here. Some people would say John Paul Jones, the guitarist from fucking Led Bass, Zeppelin. They're the bassist from yeah. Led Zeppelin stands out for me. Dave fucking Grohl. Like, but they're all somebody who they can have their moments within a song from each other. That's why I was putting my band together, not from the best pieces, but from the people who I feel like would congeal together yeah, the best. I did the that's same why thing. I picked that's why I picked Andy Hurley, Mike Dern, a Claudio. Um <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Dan Campbell. Your Just Honor, because I, I my think kid. that <laughs> I think that all those together. But I'm not saying Claudio as lead singer, mostly because I know that Ernest would pick it if I put Claudio as lead singer. <laughs> but also because I just think that, like, if you have somebody like that, if we're making this pop punk sound, it's all about these pieces coming together in a significant way. But but and I'm Claudio about as them. as not the front man, not has as that, the front man. Has that ever worked? Is that it, is there a precedent for that? I think Claudio Claudio is not a guy who likes the limelight. Like he's not a guy who loves being in the limelight. There's a reason Coheed could have sold out after like their big albums where they went fully pop punk and everything else, and they never really did because he more so wanted to stay obscure. Um, I don't think he really. I think he's an over like not an overqualified frontman that seems like almost passive to say something like that but i almost feel like he's somebody who he wouldn't mind in a super group setting being somebody who's like the number right. two so both of these bands were not experiencing them in a vacuum like That's people why... are, are watching this knowing they're all of the other work that well done. yes exactly that's why I'm, I'm thinking of them as just people who all have similar sounds to each other coming together in one form. well yeah so here's the question who's making your music who's writing it all of them that's i think, typically not how bands work but i think that it is a lot of it is kind of more of a jam style sound something like it but than crooked vultures where it's it's them almost jamming together and finding their sound together where claudio's playing a riff and then Andy Hurley starts playing the drums. Mike Dirt starts playing a fucking bass riff off of it and Dan Campbell's like, oh shit, some lyrics are coming to me. Alright, let me like go off of this and he starts singing something like that. Like, I'm going for something. It's a, gonna be a little bit harder. Is That's that why pop almost... punk? It, are, are, are there pop punk bands that do that? Because that sounds very like proggy or psychedelic. It's not, no, but I don't think that's necessarily, because I think that if you go based off of a riff, like, I mean, every band, like, I mean, think about any times that you just, like, jam with people, it could turn into something completely different, but you just lay down a beat and then you just kind of go with it. Like, even hip-hop artists do that all the time, that you there's a beat and then you just kind of layer and layer and layer off of it. Like, that's kind of just how any music, I feel um, like, is the best way to write it. And that's why I think that these artists would be best work together. That's why if any artist, I would pick something more like a the Wonder Years kind of a sound for it to go with. Maybe a little bit more of a jammy kind of a sound. We could bring a little bit more of the older Green Day kind of the twelve minute song kind of. We could. That's when we could really rely off of a Claudio or a Mike Dern or even Andy Hurley kind of to use a little bit of that almost having like a four act song together um that's where i want all of these genre or all of these band members to kind of push forth their okay push each other i'm just thinking about like if they're jamming who is really who has a strong vision in the band and it's claudio claudio has like insane like i can't imagine him just being like no you you go ahead and cook with those lyrics i think you're i think you're underrating dan campbell here i i can't believe that i'm 
defending Dan Campbell and not Claudio in this situation. Well, I'm not. No, I'm not are... saying that he's weak. I'm saying that I don't see Claudio just like being like, yeah, Wonder Years that meshes well with me. <laughs> I don't know if they jam together, the sound would be very interesting. I agree, but I don't know if it would be great. Um, I think we need a little. I see because the thing that I recipe there's there's some like I'm not thinking of like fucking Apollo 2 the writing well for this volume me- 17 <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not saying something like that where it's super proggy Coheed Coheed has shown that they can go super poppy so you're saying the the sound is based on Wonder Years and then it goes into a, a little, little bit, bit of a Green Day or a little bit of a Fall Out Boy yes. or a little bit yeah, of yeah, a yeah. Coheed, I think I think that the Wonder the I think that the Wonder Years the reason why one of the main reasons I chose Dan Campbell is because I feel like he is the perfect mesh where he can both do like Forever the Sickest Kids and also something very hardcore and also something very acoustic and that's why I chose these artists is because I feel like they're all very malleable yeah that's right, why Drew, I chose mine as well um, but I, I wanted a, f- if not a frontman, I wanted somebody who is writing our lyrics. I didn't want to leave it up to a jam to figure out how the music goes. Gerard is our hard frontman here. Um, and that doesn't mean that anyone has left out of anything because imagine most MCR songs, there is room for every instrument to cook in these songs. Like th- that's the members of the band are very talented for that reason. Because their uh, harder songs go hard as fuck. Imagine the Black Parade is dead live with Travis fucking drumming. It would be an unbelievable show. Um, and then you add Mike Durant, who is the perfect blender bassist. That's why we both chose him. Like he, yeah. he is he ha- a he has experience with a strong frontman in Billy Joe. B he has experience with this almost like pop punk opera sound that Gerard works with. He's the only person with experience in it because Green Day is the only other band that's done something like that. Because if we're making an album, it's going to be a concept album. But again, a lot of things are figured out in the jam. And I think that if you have Travis jamming, who can do literally anything, Steve jamming, who doesn't write music, but can add amazing riffs and amazing uh, solos to anything uh, and his effects on top of that, I think we get a sound that to me, my vision is it's it is a concept album and it is like operatic in scale and like it feels very grand, but it's faster, like it has harder beats and it it's more instrumental. I'm thinking almost Mad Max pop punk, almost in the vein of Na 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 by My Chemical Romance, where it has this like apocalyptic. Kind yeah, of this, sound. yeah, this feel of like the end of the world, but like it's fun almost. Something like that, where and that album went wrong because no other song on the album holds up to that idea. Hey, sing exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, but if he stuck with that idea, but then put in the songwriting that he put in in the two albums prior to that, and then we have instrumentalists who can do literally anything in the world, but also don't have to do everything. Like they're all plenty good at sitting back and letting the others work. We would have, I think one of the best, it would be my favorite album ever. I think like it, it's, it would be perfect to me. I I made my perfect pop punk band. Let the record show that drew is not a fan of danger days. 
I'm not. Let, I, let but I think the idea that. of Danger Days, the promise that we had with Na Na Na, we were all like, oh my God, this sound is so, it's fresh, but it also is classic. That's what I want. I, I mean, want fresh, I, but classic. I'm not, I can't push back against, because these were all, everybody that you mentioned, the Gerard Way, everywhere, I mean, we agreed on Mike Turnt, but <laughs> Gerard Way, Travis Barker, uh, even the pup guitarist, uh, Slad Valkowski, um, that's his name. He, like, those were all people who were on my list yeah. at one point. Like, I won't disagree with those sounds. I just, I, the reason why I didn't pick artists like that is because they all have very strong sounds. And my biggest concern is about making sounds that can mesh together. If anything, the biggest concern would be Claudio, <laughs> but I think that Claudio has shown before that he can kind of just chill more so in the background maybe less so with vocals but i think that if he was playing lead guitar i don't think claudio would mind being back up is this is this current age claudio yeah i mean i honestly i don't think claudio's age at all i think that he's, he's taking an ageless being i honestly think that he's taking the same serum that tom brady is taking that's why he's playing at 41 years old and winning a super bowl and that like he literally is just as good as he was 10 years ago and you're like what the fuck how are you hitting those notes still? and danger days is the last album that mcr put out and that was almost 10 years ago so would gerard way be like right after that like that's what I yeah. That's what like I'm saying. Right. We're we're plucking the ideal version of these people. In so my it's mind. not what like current. Of, what version of Gerard Way? Are you I'm taking Mike the MC. the singing ability and the songwriting ability of Black Parade Gerard okay. Way, um, with a little bit of the pop punk edge of the of Three Cheers. For but Sweet he Revenge. made they made Danger Days. Yeah. But well, yeah, but yeah, before before, of, before yeah, yeah. this group. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but we are. But I'm still plucking like an, a platonic version of him, sort of. But I think the sound makes so much sense for all these musicians if we go in that direction. Of if you're taking days. one year, then you have to take the pup guitarist when he's like 14 years old. And just <laughs> no, it's not like, the same year for everybody. You just pick one that makes year, no sense. And then that's okay, it. we got to We got to okay, call it because so we're, I'm just we're saying, going right, super long. Okay, I'll it, close call up. It, call it. This this band to me is so cohesive. The sound in my head makes so much sense for each of these musicians. The mesh is perfect to me. There's plenty of room for all these guys to go hard, and they're all more than willing to sit back and not go hard. If we have a ballad, if we have a slower moment, it all works for me. I even came up with a name for them because we're going, we're going Mad Max, we're going edgy, we're going. Obviously, it's very dramatic with Gerard as our front man. Uh, live shows are unbelievable. Steve Slagkowski, our guitarist, influenced heavily by the guitarist from Television, which is a band that I ride hard for. Um, their album Marquee Moon, amazing '70s album. Let's go with a Television song as as our band name. See No Evil. Great okay. name. Did you have a name? I'm going to go with um, <laughs> the Florida Daft Punk World Project. That's pretty, that's pretty good. <laughs> am the just, Florida I'm Daft like, Punk World Project. I'm just <laughs> looking at things around the room because I didn't know we had a fucking name and name for this band. No, I will, Jesus. I will, like, hey, I don't take like, that know, away from me. It's a pitch. It's a pitch. <laughs> if anything, maybe that, maybe your name takes away from your pitch. <laughs> oh, he hates it. He fucking hates All it. All right. Ernest, All right. We got to call it. We got to call time. it. We got to call it. Going super long on this one, but that was a great fight. Wow. Amazing, amazing, amazing. We got to do this again because that was incredible. That was yeah. intense. Uh, I'm sweaty. Yeah, <laughs> but we got to backtrack a little bit to the Kendrick fight because that was a heated, heated fight. It was still clean, but you guys brought the heat. Um, and I got to say, I got to go with Drew. Ooh. I got to go with Drew on that one because he was the underdog. 
he was the underdog because clearly to pimp a butterfly is a much more well acclaimed album and but i wanted to make the case for to be fair i didn't prepare for that album whatsoever but i just i just went out you just made so many great points about why it's personal to him as a person and like the whole origin story well if i'm being dead honest i I don't think it's like better than To Pimp Butterfly, but I think at this point it's crazy to say, but it is underrated just because To Pimp Butterfly is so amazing. I just, I also, th- but I do, I didn't bring this up while this is an argument. I know you already gave out the point and everything else, but I do think that To Pimp Butterfly is still a personal story right. because it's personal to him as and that's a star. Kind of why, yo, as a star. That's kind of why I didn't give you the point because you didn't bring that up because that's such a clear. That's such a clear, clear uh, thing with that album is that he does this broader uh, story that also relates to him as a man. And the fact that you didn't bring that up really, really got it. But moving on to the next round, I got to go with you, Hunter, with mm. the Blade Runner uh, pitch. Just because Blade Runner TV showed the series. I, yeah, I, I got I, I to say with Gattaca, it, it does paint a hopeful uh promise of a good sellable show that could bring a lot of talent but i just think that the 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 idea that you're pitching of this of taking that world and the themes that are established in the new movie but in the approach of like the the more like i guess low budget lo-fi approach of that old movie and kind of like stretching that out and opening up that world, I think bodes so, so well. And you just, I think, Hunter, you just did a great job of kind of selling that, um, that way of like, of like all of the different storylines that you could approach there, of that kind of gr- the griminess of that and the, the human approach of of consciousness kind i alluded to earlier linking it to westworld but i think in the blade runner world what's established there and what you can pull from both movies and i guess you would only pull it from the first movie if we're really talking uh pre-2000s um but i i just think that that was that was great came close though because gattaca uh that was a great i was not into that pitch at all and then you kind of brought me more into i just i really liked i really liked the approach you gave of how malleable it is and how much you could shape it the real it was a close one it's not this though it's what i just emailed to hbo so if they say yes then you're gonna have to fucking change it was actually my dude they just sent me and you're like this is my holy original idea (laughs) all right and now for the final one the one you guys just did the pop punk one i'm 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 baking it in i'm baking it in but we got to wrap it up this was tough. This was really, really tough because, Hunter, you really nailed it with the fact that these people will all kind of fit together in this group that will bode new things, new directions, unheard sounds for this particular group of people. And, Drew, the approach you took was let's give one guy the pen to lead the way for the music that this group is going to take. And you chose Gerard Way to be that. And it's kind of hard for me to see how exactly that would be different from the records that were made under My Chemical Romance. 
But given the the group that you chose and the sounds in in those groups in Green Day in Pup and in Blink One Eighty Two with Travis Barker, I think that that will be the better group. Yeah! Gotta give it to Drew. <laughs> I really I loved I love the approach of like having love these four guys. Was it because ha- I chose Claudio? Was that because was that it? Was it because I no, chose Claudio? And I like the fact that you didn't choose Claudio for I, the lead. Maybe if you would have chosen Claudio for the I'd lead, like that would have been a on better. The, this podcast that I quit. I quit without <laughs> a mic. I'm off of this now forever. I think maybe if if Claudio would have been the lead, it could have been an oh, interesting. Oh, I forgot to flip those at the very end. Uh, Dan Campbell is the lead guitarist and Claudio is the lead. Oh, well, I, I uh, forfeit. You won. <laughs> okay, I don't know because I'm on record for saying that I don't like Claudio's voice. Mm-hmm. That's why I picked him because I yes. think he's the most overqualified backup vocalist. Mm-hmm. Yes, but then you're talking about how my people are overqualified. But I just it, you didn't sell me enough on Dan Campbell as being like the core of where the this vision. music is going to come from. You kind of made it sound like it's going to be like a collaborative thing, and I just don't have as clear of a picture in my head of what that would be. You maybe should have done a little bit of a recipe corner there to kind of <laughs> throw God in a damn little. It. I should have played some fucking yeah. sweet music. <laughs> hey, I mean, I should have played the music for my. Uh, it my... was close. It was really close because you both pick two great, great groups. But as far as the arguments presented goes, I think Drew did a better job of selling why Gerard Way as the frontman would be a leader for the people that you chose to create mm. this new uh, type of record. I'm glad because that, that's a strong choice. You know, the other because the, the other option I wanted for lyricist, the only other one is Pete Wentz. Like he's an amazing uh, lyricist, but like, you can't have them both in the same band. Yeah, but amazing, amazing fight we fought a mic that was great you guys did an amazing job shake it out shake come it. on <laughs> oh, no. he, he, he like won't a, shake he, like <laughs> he gave me his hand. left hand <laughs> he flaccid left hand uh, let us get. know what you thought of this episode of uh we fought a mic let us know if you thought i made the wrong call maybe Whoa. i'll put out a twitter poll and see what the the audience has oh, to a say fan about vote this. versus the earnest vote yeah maybe if enough people revolt then we'll have to overthrow the decision and hunter will actually be the champion who knows yo the electoral college is bullshit go with the popular vote (laughs) (laughs) hillary clinton is our president we gotta watch game of thrones so let's wrap it up we bought a mic gmail.com uh at gmail.com we bought a mic on twitter uh please let us know what you thought of this and who you think is the rightful winner did i make the right call I don't think so. Um, I don't think so either. Me at my, you can follow me at my new podcast that I'm making. It's just me. Just Hunter just arguing with himself. It's just me. I'm like, that's a good point, man. No, that's a good point by you. I'd listen. Um, it's all recorded by a phone by Galaxy S9 audio. Um, yeah, follow me on Twitter and Lairbox at Hunt Mobley, H-O-N-T-M-O-B-L-E-Y. All right. I'll be posting pictures of my trophy that I'm going to engrave for myself. On Twitter, that at you're Drew paying Deason. for out of pocket. Yeah, I'll be posting reviews of my own idea on Letterboxd at uh, Drew D. And Your I'll, check from HBO. Yeah, and I'll be making a playlist of my amazing fake pop punk band on Spotify. So cool. find me all over those places. And uh, I'm at Caldernist on Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram. I've been your judge. Maybe I'll get to fight next time. Maybe we'll bring a, a couple of guests on next time for next. We fought a mic. Maybe the guest judge or something. Has to be a judge. Uh, <laughs> Guess what, Ernest? You're fucking losing. 
<laughs> All right, it's been real. Thanks for listening. This is the last episode of We Bought a Mic. We love Farewell. you. Bye bye. Hunter has bye. something that looks like a gun on his face.